Hey, my name is Tracy Burns. I'm a financial advisor with UBS. And this podcast is called Five Things. So you're going to learn five things and then you're going to move on with your day. We are busy. We all have stuff to do. I get it. I'm on this mission to help women empower them financially, especially women going through divorce transition. I have a super soft spot for female founders and entrepreneurs, small businesses, and of course, closing this dang wage gap. I have three young adult kids, two of them are women, so I have a personal interest in this, and this podcast is a super small piece to help us get there. So please listen to the previous podcasts. Five things you should be thinking about right now. Five reasons um, to find the perfect board. Everyone needs a board. I don't care how big your business is, how to create your own board. And I recently did one that I'm really pretty proud of. It's almost like your girlfriend's guide to money. Five things you need to understand. And when I tell you, not one of the things is a stock ticker. You don't need to understand that crap to understand your financial situation. So today is super important to me because it is a topic that we don't talk enough about. Um, it is in our face, it's in your backyard, and you don't even know it. And the beauty of this is this rock star woman and I went to college together, which is crazy. And now I feel like you've surpassed me in, in your importance in life. Jennifer Gentile Long, and I have to use Gentile because that's how I know you. She is currently the uh, CEO of Equitus, which she co-founded in April of 2009, which basically is, its main purpose is to focus on sexual violence and human trafficking. So Jen, I have to toss to you before I start to sound stupid about all this. I, um, this is like, you've earned your wings 10 times over what you're doing and what you're, you spend your days doing. So if you could, first of all, tell us what the heck human trafficking is and why it drove you to create this organization. Uh, sure. And I, I do have to start though by saying, Tracy, I thank you for having me. And I will always remember our times in the kitchen at Gamma Phi Beta at Lehigh Aww. University. <laughs> I definitely looked up to you. And I think it was a lot of those um, experiences at Lehigh that ultimately let us let me here. I remember so eating, point, wait, but I'd say I remember eating Captain Crunch out of a big plastic bag in the kitchens late night. That's, that's all I'm going to say. Yes. <laughs> well, but you did work out a lot. So I didn't, I may not have followed it till I was a little bit older, but great role model. Great role model. That's so, funny. so I, yeah. So thanks for having me here. You asked what human trafficking is. I'll tell you, and then I'll go into a little bit about how I got here. Yeah. So basically, human trafficking is forcing someone or preying on someone's personal vulnerabilities to convince them to do something they wouldn't otherwise do. So that's whether selling their bodies for sex, working 20 hours for no money in a factory, domestic help uh, field. It can be done through violence, through overt threats to them, to someone else. Work can be done through manipulation, promises to fill a void. Uh, a lot of survivors have suffered adverse childhood effects, abuse, uh, been in homes with abuse, have suffered sexual abuse, um, uh, love, or just has another vulnerability. And I just, you asked how I got here because Lehigh, you know, I was a Lehigh student, University of Pennsylvania Law School student, and I had experiences at both of those places that really brought me face to face with victims of domestic violence, victims of sexual violence, and it propelled me to want to be a prosecutor because I felt that that was a, a role that could have a great 
impact on a victim could also have a terrible impact on a victim. So I, I, I strove to try to be a good one. And I was a prosecutor in Philadelphia for a long time, handling child abuse, rape, sex crimes, um, trafficking, or it was before the TVPA, but we would see a lot of trafficking, especially interfamiliar stalking. And it was there that I saw the incredible violence, particularly um, targeted at sexually, sexually exploited women and girls. And I saw these same victims, uh, you know, raped, beaten, murdered, and then cycle through the system as defendants too, charged with prostitution related crimes or other crimes where they were forced or coerced to commit the crime. And somehow the system wasn't saying both sides. And that led me to want to create a resource for prosecutors and for others to increase justice and safety for those victims and for the community. So is that what Equitas does? Yeah, Equitas works on sexual violence, domestic violence, stalking, and human trafficking by working through prosecutors primarily, but other partners, they could be healthcare, civil attorneys, advocates, and we train them. We provide training locally, nationally, internationally. Uh, we also provide uh, tailored expert consultation and technical assistance. Sometimes people call us in trial. Sometimes people call us for experts. Sometimes people call us because they want to make their offices better. And we also write legal uh, original publications. Some of them are articles. Some of them are briefs, legal briefs, amicus briefs, they're called friends of the court briefs to really highlight policy issues. And I know you're teaching now at Georgetown, so all the more trying to get this next generation of lawyers um, aware of what's happening out there. Yes, we are. Um, we have a great class um, that we teach at Georgetown Law. It's an experiential class, so it's capped at like uh, 10 students. They come for a two-hour class a week, and then they work for us, they intern, for 10 hours a week. And it's incredible. In fact, one of our associate attorney advisors was one of our Georgetown law students a few oh, years ago. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, that's it's amazing. absolutely incredible. So, okay, so for novices, and not that we're novices, right? But I, as I was saying to you before, some, some of us are only aware of human trafficking based on like the CSI TV shows and like all the things we've watched. And you, you, it's one of those like, you know, you don't actually believe it, you know, it happens in your own backyard. Um, yeah. So. One, it clearly does. And I was telling you that I've been in and out of the Fort Lauderdale airport and it's over the loudspeaker, like continuously. If you see it, say something, it, but they call out human trafficking. So it, are there specific parts of the country where it's, it's like over the, over the top or is it just that Fort Lauderdale just happens to be ahead of the curve on this? You know, I I never like to highlight right. <laughs> any jurisdiction that, well, I'm just saying ahead or not ahead, just because there are a lot of places doing a lot of great things. But I would say certainly if you're hearing public service announcements over a loudspeaker somewhere, that's great because it is bringing to the forefront of visitors and other people who live in that area that human trafficking is around. I mean, it is across our country, rural, urban, suburban. It is across the world. And, you know, it's so prevalent because it's one of those crimes where the victims are not always seen by the community. They may be from historically marginalized um, communities themselves. They may be um, here um, 
unlawfully, you know, in the country, they could be involved in the sex trade. Uh, they could have other vulnerabilities that that society just doesn't see. And so that's a way to mask it. And the crime itself, um, you know, there are indicators, but there are ways to hide it. And so, you well, know, well, you that's had why said, you had said, yeah. and I didn't mean to cut you off, but you said no. it's in the fashion, like it's the model. It could be the models in the fashion industry, even. Yeah. I mean, I didn't it, even think about. Right. If you think about the level of exploitation, I mean, you're thinking about uh, you could be, you know, thinking about labor exploitation where you have people who are working without being paid for long hours. But you can also have sexual exploitation, people who are identified, groomed. And again, there's a vulnerability. So the vulnerability is what? That you want to break into an industry, that you want to be, um, maybe you're young when you're breaking in. And maybe you're then, um, you know, coming in somewhere and you're identified, you can be groomed, and then you can be passed around and manipulated and forced or coerced in a way that can be very difficult for the outside eye to spot. And for the victim, you are the person probably with the least status. And so you're being told directly and indirectly that uh, you really can't do anything about what's happening to you and no one's going to believe you anyway. Yeah. And that um, keeps a lot of people from reporting. And I have and, to say, yeah. yeah. And I have to say that like being in the media for a bunch of years, you realize that they, these people are smart and they prey on the people who are weak. Yeah. And oh, yeah. It, right. It's like, they could, it's like, they're almost like a different cup you know, they have like a light shining on them in a room that they they stand out and they could find their victims in a New York second. Right. Um, and it, again, you could be a very strong person, but it's the, it's not the vulnerability, right? That is the crime. It's the person who exploits it. And right. these perpetrators are masters at exploiting something. And then you can also, you have, I mean, you have victims who are, can be highly educated, come from very strong families, but, and so then you may start blaming yourself. You may start thinking you should have seen something before it happened. And that can serve as a barrier to reporting as well. That's insane. Okay. So I had asked you to tell us how to contact people if indeed we see it, something, but I want to save that now for the end. So it's fresh in people's minds. So they don't have to like rewind into this thing to go find the numbers. So let's dive in to the five things that people should know about human trafficking survivors. Cause this, to me, I love this angle. Like it's, it, these are still people, right? <laughs> Absolutely. People, and they have to get on with their lives somehow. And, um, and, and so let's talk about this. So it's, so your, your first point is that human trafficking is not, it's not, it's what happened to them. It's not them. They're not, you know, it's like, they're, it's almost like they're labeled like a criminal for the rest of their lives. Absolutely. Right. And it's it can be hurtful. It can be disempowering. And individuals gain so much lived experience and other expertise because of what they have endured. But there's so much more than the human trafficking that has happened to them. And so often what we see and, you know, you talked about a little bit when you talk about um, some of these shows or some movies. And, you know, in one way, it's great that we're talking about the crime of human trafficking and exploitation. It opens the door. But on the other hand, so often these depictions are so stereotypical and it can really then almost lead to when we're working with one of these survivors, kind of having them come up and expecting them to talk about their exploitation as the value that they bring and only be about that. And, you know, that's just not 
not only is it not fair, it's very disempowering and you are missing out on the expertise. I mean, we work with survivors, we work with survivor advocates, and we don't expect those individuals to talk about the incidents that have happened to them unless they feel that they want to bring that to the table. They have so much unique insight. I mean, I've worked in the criminal justice system for a long time. I've sat at the table. I've read the research. I've sat at the table about the research. I know what it tells us, but we work with the survivors because they tell us what the research can't ever tell us. And because of that, we're able to really develop and drive these survivor-centered trauma-informed practices in a way that offices and practitioners, prosecutors, but others in the system really understand the impact of their practices and can modify them and adapt them to what actually is bringing justice and safety to a survivor. Because to your second point, you're saying, you know, these these traffickers have been deprived basically of, of any kind of choice whatsoever. Right. So they they this, this cycle keeps perpetuating itself as a result. Absolutely. Right. The whole point of trafficking, it's forced fraud and coercion, coercion. The victims don't have any agency and choice. And again, because so often a trafficker doesn't have to use, I mean, they may use overt violence and weapons, but sometimes the violence is much more subtle and the threats are so much more subtle. And as a result, the victim has no agency. They have no choice. And sometimes well-meaning prosecution and law enforcement, we identify a case. We identify a perpetrator. We want to come forward. And if we're not stopping and really putting the survivor first, thinking about what support they need and thinking about our tactics, we can sometimes mirror the trafficker. If we're using coercive tactics, if we're going right to, quote unquote, arresting a victim to keep that person safe. Uh, If we are talking about using um, different tools that really force a survivor to participate in a prosecution before they're ready to do that, then we're mimicking the trafficker. And we're reinforcing, by the way, what the trafficker has always told this victim, that the victim's not safe anywhere and that the system is going to abuse them, too. And so it's really, again, this goes back to our survivors and what they tell us when they tell us about how they are wrongfully arrested and charged and convicted sometimes and unseen, how they tell us about these practices and what could make a difference, like having an advocate stay with them to work through the sexual trauma, having housing, having a way of having um, some mentorship or some way to enter the professional or educational um, field, having their immediate needs, housing, food, shelter, childcare, safety, I mean, all of those things you need to have before you can sit and be part of a system. And as prosecutors and law enforcement, if we're going right in and thinking conviction, prosecution at all costs, then we're just removing the agency from this victim survivor and we're not enabling them to leave the life, leave the life. So that actually basically covers your third point as well, that you need to that, you know, these well-intended experts need to think out of the box be open to different ideas. And and I guess the best way to be open to these ideas is to hear from the survivors. Absolutely. Again, survivors are the experts on their own lives and they can offer so much expertise about the different venues of trafficking, different dynamics, different things that survivors need. But again, every survivor is an individual, which is why for a prosecutor, um, you know, we each have our individual roles. For the prosecutor, we want to work with advocates advocates who may be survivor advocates 
or who are really survivor informed and centered so that in each case, we know what this person needs and we are facilitating as the prosecutor, we're making sure that those partnerships are there and that this victim is gets what they need and that they are heard. You know, yeah, a prosecutor, yeah. they're not the representative of a victim. The victim isn't their client. They're the representative of the community. They have specific ethical duties. And sometimes those duties may seem at odds with the specific wishes of an individual person. But the bottom line is, first of all, the victim is the crime. See, and the crime has happened to that person. We have to listen. We have to respect. You listen to what the victim is saying that they want and they need. To the extent that it may be inconsistent with what has to happen as the, you know, the outcome of a case, listening, trying to really rethink where you're coming from, like, okay, I had a, you know, specific thought about how this case should proceed and what the just outcome was. But maybe I stand back and I start thinking, okay, is there another way to do this? Or are there additional supports that are needed? That's really important. I think you make a really fascinating point that the prosecutor represents the community and not the victim. And so to move on to your fourth point, that success takes many forms. I mean, what, how do you define success? There has to have been some successes thus far. Your organization probably is one of them. Uh, no, well, thank you. We, we hope to be. I think too, when you do this work long enough, I think I'm driven more by the things that were unsuccessful before. Mm. I mean, I think the one great lesson in my life is that success can't be measured by convictions. We want accountability. We want perpetrators to not work with impunity. I mean, I, when someone is not held accountable for their actions, when they're able to abuse, they go on and on and escalate. Yeah. However, Convictions alone are not the right measurement. We know this from looking at human trafficking and other crimes. First of all, sometimes um, if you look at a conviction rate, it may mean that you're not taking hard or complex cases forward. So it may look like you have 100% conviction rate, but if you're only taking 1% of your cases, that doesn't really measure how we're handling these cases. Yeah. The other piece is conviction. It doesn't tell us whether we've protected a, a defendant's rights. I mean, fair fairness, due process, those are important. It also doesn't tell us the victim's experience. Have we supported the victim? So it's so much more, and we've really developed um, systems to try to help prosecutors primarily, but their partners also look at what outcomes are they trying to achieve and are the things they do that they're doing, are they achieving those outcomes? And what practices, you know, everyone likes to throw around these words, we're trauma-informed, we're survivor-centered, and we've really tried to hone these down into specific actions and to try to incorporate this into management, into prosecutors' offices, looking at what they're doing and making sure that the actions they're taking, they really are survivor-centered. So, okay, so to finish up now, there has to have been progress, right? You know, is it better out there? Is it worse? Is it is it in Bergen County, New Jersey? Like, where are we with it right now? Uh, is human trafficking in Bergen County, New Jersey? 100 million percent. Absolutely. Right. Is it hidden? Absolutely. Are we making progress? Of course we are. I mean, part of our job, because we're in the weeds and we're trying to help, 
is to really focus on the gaps so that we can try and close them because there's so much urgency. These are actual human beings, right? These are survivors suffering. So that's where we focus. But we don't want to lose sight of the fact that there's been so much awareness in the last 20 years about this crime. There have been more resources put towards these crimes. There are survivor leaders, individuals who were victims of these crimes, who are now survivor leaders who are help moving policy forward. And there have been real coordinated efforts, efforts from industry, efforts from law enforcement, advocacy, healthcare, to really try to come together and reduce the prevalence of these crimes, to increase identification of victims, sex, sex trafficking, labor trafficking. But we have a long way to go. We yeah. have a long way to go. But, and I mentioned this County in New Jersey, just because my point is it's in everyone's backyard. And so Absolutely. since it is in everyone's backyard, let's quickly talk about if I think I am witnessing it or I think I you know, know someone who may be involved in this, what do I do? Sure. So, I mean, the, the thing is you really, obviously you want to be careful for your safety, for the other person's safety. I mean, there are some people who say, you know, if you're in a position to ask someone, are you okay? And that person can communicate safely. That's something. Um, some, you know, sometimes we see really, um, you know, we may see an assault going on or an isolated crime that feels like it's part of a bigger picture. And if you're seeing a crime occur, you want to call 911 and you want to tell them, look, I'm witnessing an assault. I'm witnessing, a, you know, kidnapping, whatever you're seeing. And also put in there, and I suspect the person might be the victim of human trafficking. This way, maybe the police can intervene and investigate further, and they have that piece of information in their mind. Because with all the training going on, that doesn't necessarily mean that the people responding have all of it. You know, the other option, though, is sometimes you don't see a crime happening by... You know, something is set off inside of you, a spidey sense or something that something just isn't right. Maybe a person's being dehumanized or you're seeing something that feels like exploitation. There is a national hotline. It's 888-373-7888. And you can call that hotline and describe what you're seeing and try to get some guidance about what to do. Um, maybe even sometimes they may have that number passed on to the to the person um, that you, you know, yeah. the victim that you're seeing. I'll, I'll make Either. sure I put that number in the write-up for people. You know what the thing is though, Jen, like, and I know, and this is terrible, right? But today it's, we're all in this, like, I don't want to get involved. I, I, right. I, I don't know what's going on. I don't want to get involved. And like you said, you worry about the ramifications on yourself these days. Yeah. So you're but you know, you want people sit back, even though they know something's going on. You you know, we, we, we have to be a little bit braver for the sake of our uh, communities. Yeah, you really do. And it's kind of like the whole see something, say something. And yeah. that's the thing. Call the hotline. Get some guidance. Say what you're seeing. Um, because sometimes the hotline, they collect data and they may understand things that are happening. I mean, these magazine crews, uh, you know, some venues are, are more obvious um, again, you don't want to put a blanket on every single thing, but, um, you know, stripping, exotic clubs, prostitution, webcams. Again, so often the individuals involved in that, that sex trade are so dehumanized that um, we don't see them. People don't see them. And yeah. there may, you know, you have opportunities where there may be survivors there and you have an opportunity to say something. And the hotel, you you pointed out hotels and airlines, because I think that's it seems to be like a logical place where this kind of stuff would happen. So just keep your eyes and ears open. 
Jen, as I close up, because we could talk about this for the next like two hours. It's, it just hurts my heart that this stuff is happening. And I don't know. I think so many of us feel like helpless. But how do we help? How do we help Equitas? What it, what if um, if anything can we do to help your organization? Actually, well, I mean, Equitas is a boots on the ground organization. We are made up of former prosecutors, some former advocates who were specialized in sex crimes, domestic violence, stalking, human trafficking. We work with survivors. We work with individuals on the ground. Um, we, you know, obviously investing and supporting our work through donations or through grants is very important to what we do. We are 100% grant funded from the government and from private foundations. And you know, when you're, you know, you can see our work is all up on our websites and our affiliated websites. And I would also say, come and look around, you know, as sad as it is to say, Everyone listening, they maybe have been a victim of one of these crimes, could be, or they're going to know someone. And yeah. some of the tools and resources on there may help you be able to respond better because we know how the first person to whom a victim you know, tells or reports to, what that person's response is typically tends to influence whether or not the victim gets help. Give us the website and um, so people know how to check you out. Absolutely. It's equitasresource.org. That's A-E-Q-U-I-T-A-S resource, all one word, .org. We also have affiliated websites and pertinent to this, I would check out our justexits.org, J-U-S-T-E-X-I-T-S.org. This is amazing. You're amazing. What you do is, um, it's, it's, I mean, it's it's leaving me speechless because you are so selfless and giving of what you're doing to help people in situations that they they probably don't even know how they ended up in them. Um, I hope everyone checks out both websites. Please, if nothing else, maybe this made you just slightly more aware of what's going on around you. Jen Long, you are my hero, girl. I cannot thank you enough for doing this for us. Thanks, Tracy. Thank you so much. And honestly, a shout out to all the people on on the line doing the direct work and all the survivors who are helping us do a better job. So what Jen is doing is just so amazing to me. And why I wanted to bring it to your attention is that we, women in particular, have the power to make change. You know, in the U.S., women control more than 10 trillion, trillion with a T, $10 trillion in household financial assets. And that number actually might triple in the next 10 years. Do you know how much money that is that we will be in control of? And that means we can change the world. This is so important to me. This is why financial empowerment for women in particular is so important to me. Women are going to have all this money and we need to know what to do with it. We need to know where it is. And we need to be smart enough to direct it in places that matter. We can direct our philanthropy. We can change policy. You can do whatever you want with the dollars in your hands, but you need to understand where they are, what they're doing, and how they can work for you. So the more you understand your money, where it is, what you can do, the more you can change the world. That's why I'm, I, that's why I brought this to you. That's why I want you to think about it. That's why I'm so grateful to Jen Long for taking the time to explain it all to us.
presentation is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice or the basis for making any investment decisions. Neither UBS Financial Services, Inc. nor any of its employees provide tax or legal advice. You should consult with your personal tax or legal advisor regarding your personal circumstances. In providing wealth management services to clients, we offer both investment advisory and brokerage services, which are separate and distinct and differ in material ways. For information, including the different laws and contracts that govern, visit UBS.com forward slash working with us. UBS Financial Services, Inc. is a subsidiary of UBS AG, member FINRA, SIPC.